Proctor here with some quick announcements before we get into this episode. First, I would like to let everyone know about CodeMesh, a London-based conference dedicated to functional programming and alternative tech. It is going to run November 3rd through the 5th, and some of the speakers include guests of the show, including Reed Draper, Jessica Kerr, and Richard Meinrich. CodeMesh has graciously offered listeners of this podcast a 10% discount off the price of the conference if you use the discount code FNGeekery10 when you register. To find out more about CodeMesh and to register, visit CodeMesh.io. That's C-O-D-E-M-E-S-H dot I-O. Second, if you thought episode 12 with Audi Bulwaka was interesting, even if you didn't agree with everything he said, I want to let you know the Global Day of Code Retreat is coming up on November 15th. There are going to be code retreats held worldwide on that day, and there's a good possibility that there will be one in your area. If not, and you are interested in hosting one, the organizers of Global Day of Code Retreat do a great job to help you with everything you need to know. To find out more about Code Retreat and see if there will be one in your area, go to coderetreat.org. That's C-O-D-E-R-E-T-R-E-A-T dot O-R-G. Lastly, Bruce Tate informed me that his new book, Seven More Languages in Seven Weeks, is heading to production. If you enjoyed episode 15 and are curious about the seven more languages mentioned, now is the time to get it. Welcome to the 17th episode of Functional Geekery. I am your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Jose Villeneuve. Jose, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Hi, I am the creator of the Elixir Program Language, which is what uh, we are going to talk about today. I am also a member of the Rails Core team. I've been a member of the Rails Core team and involved in Rails for a while. So a lot of people may know me from there. And I work for Platform Attack. We are a Rails shop and we build products and applications in Rails. And that's pretty much about me, yeah. That was one of the things I was thinking about was I knew your name from Rails early on and as part of the Rails core contributions. And then I hear a Rails contributor is going and creating his own language. And part of me was skeptical at first because A, just going and creating a new language isn't necessarily an easy undertaking. And to be able to get things right, more languages are more interesting experiments than not, than actual languages that get Steam. So there's kind of two parts to this. One was what kind of prompted you to actually go and write the language and go create a language? Was it kind of a learning experience or did you kind of find that there was a niche needed that you were trying to address at least for yourself? It was really both at the same time because I was working with Rails and one of the features I was working with was actually making Rails thread safe, which means that you're going to deploy Rails into production and it should be able to use all cores on your machine without crashing, at least. That's the idea of ThreadSafe. It's not even about doing it efficiently. It's about not crashing. So I was working on that. And for many reasons, it was really, really hard to do that in Ruby. And at that time, the reason we were working on that is because we knew that concurrency is becoming more and more important. The machines are starting to have more cores, all that the free lunch is over thing. So I thought, well, if concurrency is becoming a much more important thing, we need to have a good solution for this, right? The current tooling, whatever we have right now, is not really good. And I knew that there are other languages that were starting to gain more and more traction, even at the time, that did it really, really well. So I thought, okay, maybe it's time for me to go and see 
really learn what those languages are doing and try to understand and see what we can go from there. So I think originally I even wanted to maybe bring something into Ruby. I like to say that I don't think a lot of same people would go with the idea, I'm going to create a new programming language. Yeah, <laughs> that doesn't sound like a very good idea. So what I did is that I started to learn different languages and eventually I started to use more Erlang and the Erlang virtual machine and I fell completely in love with the whole ecosystem, the whole runtime, the virtual machine. And I thought, well, this is really great and I want the next software I write, the next thing I put in production. I want to be running on this virtual machine. Because of the whole design, the Erlang virtual machine was designed for building distributed applications that are fault-tolerant and robust. And that really resonated with me, the whole design choices of how you organize your coding processes and processes, we're probably going to talk a lot about processes in this conversation. So it's very important to make it clear that when I say a process, I mean an Elixir or an Erlang process, which are lightweight thread of execution, right? They're really, really cheap. You can spawn like thousands of hundreds of them in your machine. So the whole thing really resonated with me. And then I started to use Erlang more and more. And the way I like to sum up this first year of fashion is that I liked everything I saw there, but I hated the things I didn't see. So there were things that for me, it was missing in the language. From my background in Ruby, I wanted a way to do metaprogramming, or I wanted a way to do polymorphism. So up to this point was need. And then I said, okay, I'm going to write my programming language for fun in this virtual machine because I want to learn and I want to see how things are going to play out. And I did that, and the first version was really horrible. Things didn't work, I broke a bunch of running features. But with time, I realized that, and this was actually the proposal I did to my partners, my co-founders at Plataforma Tech when I asked them to let me work on Elixir full-time, is that after some time studying and seeing what other languages are doing in the terms of concurrency functional programming, I really thought, you know, there is really a niche here, we could really expose the virtual machine, which is really, really great, with a couple other features that you don't really have in Erlang, right? Which is a focus on productivity by providing a really great tooling or a focus on making an extensible language, for example, with macros. So today we have macros that there are more like list macros that allow you to exchange a language to other domains. So from that point, it then went from learning to actually build the language. And that was the beginning of 2012. It's just one of those, you hear about someone creating a language, and it seems to usually fall into the two camps of, I needed this for myself, or I'm trying to understand how, like, if I'm building on a VM, what better way to try and understand how the virtual machine works than to try and write something on it, so. But you mentioned it kind of hit that niche, and you had, because I've heard that, these are the three I've heard. I think I've heard some more, but you took inspirations from Erlang, which was obvious. Ruby, which is fairly obvious being the Ruby background you had and some of that metaprogramming. But I also heard Clojure with the protocol concept and some of the other Lisp kind of macros. What are the, the inspirations from those languages and maybe any others that I haven't touched on? And kind of what were the influences in helping to design that language that became Elixir? So yeah, those are the main three. So we start with Ruby because Ruby is usually the one that comes to mind when people look at Elixir because the syntax is very similar to Ruby. 
And we got other things from Ruby, which is the focus on being a very welcoming place and the focus on productivity. I think those are not like language features, but they are kind of ideas that they come and you can see around. But it's very at the superficial layer, right? It's like it's the entry point. But as soon as you start reading or learning about it, you know that it's just the syntax, right? The semantics are completely different. So the semantics, we obviously got a lot from the Erlang and the Erlang virtual machine. So the whole way we approach concurrency, distribution, the way you need to think in processes, they are exactly the same. Even the data structures like a topo in Elixir is a topo in Erlang. There is even no conversion cost or anything. You can just send it back and forth and that for all the other data structures. So we obviously got a lot from Erlang. And there is a lot from Clojure and a little bit from Lisps in general. And that's because Lisps, they are dynamic functional programming languages. And Elixir is a dynamic functional programming language. So one of the things I do a lot is that I really try to read and learn a lot about any other solution before trying to come up with my own because someone probably already solved it and solved it well or you can we can get the lessons learned or something like that. So I went a lot into Clojure and other lists to see how they are solving some particular problem, right? So one of those is that like protocols. I knew that I wanted to have a way of having extensible polymorphism in Elixir so we can extend behavior to data types that did not exist at the time the behavior was, was defined and vice versa. And there were similar solutions. The problems kind of solved in a way, for example, by functors in OCaml or type classes in Haskell or protocols in Clojure, right? And then I went with the name protocols and most of the ideas in Clojure exactly because it's a dynamic functional programming language. So it's a lot closer conceptually. There's even one which is funny is that, so there is new, right? And we have a bunch of discussions about new and if we should have them in the language or not. And I say that we have new in Elixir because we have new enclosure because no or new because at the time I was really debating how we can have good solutions to this. And then we actually don't see a lot of options in how to solve this problem in dynamic language. They are being well solved in static languages. And then I was reading The Joy of Closure and then it has a whole section on how you can make new work on your favor. And then I said, okay, I'm sold. Let's roll with this and see where it's going to take us. I wasn't sure if I heard something about Haskell, but I knew those were the big three. That brings some other stuff that I didn't actually heard about. So language creator too. You were Rails core contributor. Right. I guess you just felt the need to step up your game and take on more ownership by having to serve probably a larger community with more responsibility then. Because Rails was one thing, but taking on a whole language and being the steward of a language Seems like it's a whole another level, I'm sure. So what have you found kind of the differences there and how did that Rails core contributor kind of help you be able to take on stewardship of a whole language? It's kind of hard to answer because it was never really something that uh, eventually we said, I asked my company to let me invest in it. And that was what, the beginning of 2012. But I think that throughout the whole time, I was really, really worried, right? First, like all my estimates failed, right? I said, okay, we can have something that we can use in, that was like beginning of 2012. Next year, like for sure, no, right? It uh, was definitely not ready by next year. And all the time the company was investing and there was really no people using, I was always worried. Next year they can say, we can no longer continue doing this and you need to stop working on the language. But there was a point that I think that the community could kind of sustain itself, which is when 
was Dave Thomas and Simon St. Laurent. They announced one month after the other, that was the middle of 2013, I think, that they were writing books about Elixir. So that was the point that I was like, what? So this is really going to work. And I, it took off the pressure because now I could explain why we should continue investing in it because there are also other people investing on it too. And that's a really important signal for to have if you're going in the right direction or not. Yeah, so I'm lucky because I can really do this full time. So I don't feel any kind of burden from the community at all. I, I just get joy from it. I see people writing articles. We had the first Elixir conference in July this year and it was fantastic. Yeah, so it's definitely a different perspective, a different shape. But so far, I only got good things for it. It's interesting because maybe it's going to change in time. It's going to go back and forth. Because at the beginning, I was used to get a lot more criticism in the first years when it's small. But now I think there are so many things happening that it kind of get a good balance, right? You, you, when you get criticism, it's a positive criticism. And since the beginning of the language, I tried to make the language development really open. So we had the Elixir core mailing list and a bunch of the language features that were openly discussed there. So I would write proposals and say, here's the proposal for this feature, what everyone thinks about it. And there are interesting use cases where like I sent a proposal and people were saying, no, this is not good. There's something fishy about this. And then we went like through five iterations and then people would say, yes, this feels like something that belongs in Elixir, right? This feels like it fits with everything else. So those are ex experiences. They have been uh, really fantastic. Because on episode 15 with Bruce Tate, he gave you a really nice compliment saying, you're one of those people who know what to, not only what to bring into a language, but what to leave out as well. And so it's one of those kind of things that being that steward means both knowing what to pull in and what to leave out, especially seeing ElixirConf where it seems to be getting even more steam after that conference. So you kind of see it building to a head and it's like, it's real, it's here now. And you just cut one out, which means, okay, now you have to worry about backwards breaking changes, things as well, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And it's important about one note is that there are two kinds of one notes, right? Which is like, okay, this is the base and you're kind of building on top and the real thing is going to come soon. And there's, this is one, oh, this is good. This, the real core and the foundation is all here. We're not going to do incremental things. Of course, we'll continue improving Elixir and adding more things. But the point we are is that the one, oh, it really means a solid foundation for our language. It's not that we are going to be adding a bunch of essential stuff in upcoming releases. Everything that's supposed to be Elixir 1.0, it's there. So at this point, we don't have anything really, if we say like, what is, up for Elixir 1.1. I don't have any concrete plan because the things that I really wanted to be there, and I think that they are essential for our workflow, for our development, they are there. So that's really a nice point to reach. On that topic, it was, I know you mentioned 1.0 was kind of waiting on things like the package management and build tools to be fully settled. And I believe the logger was one of the other things I saw that was kind of like, we're waiting until these things are settled before you actually say 1.0. You kind of touched on it, but could you explain a little more about why you thought the package management and build tools were needed to be the 1.0 release versus kind of coming out separately as part of a different release and instead of being part of Core Elixir? Yeah, so I'm going to give a little bit of background. So people are going to listen to these and say, oh, I want to try Elixir. And then they're going to install Elixir. 
it's going to come with so in Elixir, we organize our code in applications, which are they can be started and, and stopped as a unit. And Elixir ships with six of them. That's how we organize your code in general. So there is Elixir itself, which is a standard library, functions like to manipulate strings and things like that, collections and so on. And then there is IEX, which is interactive Elixir, is the shell where you can go explore ideas. You can reload code do some sort of debugging and so on. We have XUnit, which is a test framework. We have Mix, which is a build tool. And Mix is probably the third or fourth application that exists. So it's actually been there for a long time. And we've been working on the build tool and make it really great for a long, long time. It's actually probably, actually, after the compiler, the build tool is probably the most complex piece of code in Elixir right now because we want to be really smart when you're compiling code, because when you're compiling code, we want to use all the cores by default. So when you're compiling code, you are throwing files to be compiled, but you can have dependencies in between them because you may want to call a macro in another module, but that module is not compiled. So we need to figure out those kind of dependencies while you're compiling your code. And we need to build a tree because if you do a change, you don't want to recompile the whole project. We need to know exactly who was affected, which source file was affected when you changed another file, right? What are the dependencies and so on? So there's a bunch of complexity in there, and we've been working on that. And it also manages our dependencies and so on. So we've been working on that for a while. And then there are two others, which is EEX, which is embedded Elixir. It's just a way to embed Elixir in long textual files. So it's easy to generate any kind of content, be it like a file you want to generate in the user machine or an HTML page. And there is Logger. It was the last feature we added. As I said, it was blocking the release because before Logger, if you're building the Elixir application and a process crash, remember those are the lightweight processes that we use to abstract our code, you would get an error message in Erlang. And sometimes it could be like really cryptic error message. So everything would be formatted in Erlang syntax. So that's not a good experience at all. I am an Elixir developer. I want to see everything formatted in Elixir terms and to have knowledge about what is happening. Because a folder data structure is the same. Sometimes we are able to encode more information on top of a data structure. So we need to be able to format that nicely. So that's why logger blocked. And one of the things that we did with Logger is that, so there is Ryak, the database, right? And there is the company, Basho, and they have a bunch of interesting open source projects written in Erlang. And they have one called Lagger, which is a logger they wrote, which solves some problems in the Erlang logger when it, it for some reason, like a bunch of things start crashing at the same time. You can kind of overflow the Erlang logger with messages. So we also took the opportunity to address those issues as well. So we tried to come up with a very robust and accessible logging mechanism for Elixir. And then we packaged everything and said, okay, we're ready. You're ready for 1.0. And package management. So when I started with Elixir, I knew that I would have to solve some problems that I didn't really want to solve. Doing a build tool was kind of one of them. It's an error that I didn't really want to do, but I knew I had to do that. Otherwise, the bootstrapping of the language would be really, really hard if I didn't do that. And the other one was a package manager. I knew I didn't want to write a package manager at all, right? It's, I hope someone's going to solve this problem because I'm definitely not solved this problem. And then there's Eric, and today he is a contributor of the language too. And he wrote this amazing package manager called Hex. And today we kind of, 
we have some small hooks that integrates hacks nicely with Elixir. So if you install Elixir, I'm going to use a project and that project uses packages, those hacks packages. It's going to ask, hey, do you want to install hacks? And it's going to install and fetch everything for you. So the flow is really good, but the project lives completely apart from Elixir. It's not an Elixir itself. And right now they just released the version 0.5. So it's still growing. They are still developing a bunch of interesting features. So it's important that it's apart from the language because they are in a completely different riff regarding development. Okay, yeah, I think I heard that it got thrown in as well, but maybe it was just all the stuff around Elixir as well, and just hearing those kind of be thrown together as a common thing. But you mentioned Hex and some of this other stuff. It kind of gets into all of this stuff I've heard has great interop with Erlang, so all this stuff should be able to help with the to- all the tooling you've done with Elixir. sounds like it, it works just as well with Erlang. So if you are actually writing Elixir proper applications and when I say applications, I think it's the same applications you're referring to of Erlang applications versus web apps or services or something else where they're like libraries or actual runnable stuff. But yeah, where it's like if I'm in pure Erlang, I can take advantage of all the Elixir tooling that you've done as well and help out as well, right? So as I said, the data structures are the same, process are the same. There is no wrapping around. So that makes it really easy to use Elixir from Erlang and Erlang from Elixir. And the tooling, so for example, the mix build tool we have, it's also able to compile Erlang code, both Erlang projects, right? So if you want to use an external Erlang project, we are able to compile it. And if you have a project that you want for some reason to mix Erlang and Elixir, it's going to work too. So calling Erlang and accessing everything in Erlang from Elixir, it's really, really great. And, you know, it's like 99% good. But the other direction, although it's easy for you to call an Elixir module from Erlang, if you want to build an Erlang project and be doing everything with Erlang and have just some modules as Elixir, it's not that easy because, for example, Rebar, which is the most known Erlang build tool doesn't know how to compile Elixir projects, for example. So if you want to kind of have both, you need to use our mix build tool and configure a project using Elixir. So one of the things that we are working on right now, we have three people in the Elixir team right now. It's Eric, Alexei, and myself. And they're working on improving the workflow for the Erlang developer. So if Erlang developer wants to use mix to build an Erlang-only project, right? How good this flow is and how can we make it better? So we need to get more people doing that because it's going to depend on their feedback because maybe for some people, it's completely fine to configure a file using Elixir syntax because they're just configuring a file, right? They're not writing a raw code. But sometimes it may not be. There may be a shortcoming. So we are exploring this area. And although you can publish Erlang packages to hacks, it's really hard today to consume those packages in an Erlang project. So Eric's working how we can make it really easy, maybe to have a hex plugin for Rebar and other Erlang build tools. So you can type a command and also easily fetch hex packages and so on. So it has not been the focal so far, understandably, but we are working on getting better. So I said like, Elixir, the tooling is like 99% good in regarding integration with Erlang. I would say that the other direction is kind of 60% good. There's a bunch of road for improvement and how we can make the workflow as good as it is in Elixir. 
part of that was just also kind of thinking of people who are familiar with Erlang, who are kind of interested in Elixir, that's some of the places to get it in. Plus, it helps ramp up both people as well. For people interested in Erlang proper, because they like the syntax, but it seems like the Elixir tooling seems really nice as well. And then back and forth the other way for I've got an Erlang project, I need to add some tests, maybe I use Elixir unit testing framework, or yeah. possibly even vice versa, where you, you've got some Elixir written, but then you run it through Dialyzer and proper quick check for Erlang or Typer, some of those other toolings as yeah. well that are built on by lots of smart people doing research and being able to take advantage of that with Elixir as well. And if you have this use case, you can come and ask in the mailing list, for example, because I know people have solved those issues when working in, so for example, people, they have Erlang projects, they want to start adding Elixir, but they want to start just writing code. They don't want at that point yet to change their Erlang code or they want to continue writing their tests to it because the whole infrastructure is already written in Erlang, right? So we have a lot of use cases of people kind of doing a little bit of this interop side and depending on what you want to do, they probably have like a recipe of how they did it and how they went from one to the other or what they are doing for some particular cases, like using specific Erlang test framework inside Mix or something like that. You also mentioned previously you had a couple of things where you started going down and you're like, this won't work at all. And I think I remember hearing something about that where Elixir went down a path and it had a false start. And then I think it was 0.5 was announcing essentially a brand new Elixir because we've fixed a lot of stuff. That seems, at least from the outside, to be able to take a lot of courage that says, look, everything we did up to this point was essentially learning, but now we're able to figure out how to do it right. Because it sounds like now, again, I could be wrong, but it sounds like you almost gutted the core and then said, here's the core, and now we're building everything on top of macros and being able to take advantage of macros with a small core kind of thing instead of having to do everything in the Beam language itself or something, right? Yes. So the story behind that was, so if you go like to when I started speaking about a little bit about the Elixir history. So the first commit to the repository was January 2011. And I spoke about it on my keynote at the Elixir conference. So at that point, right, it was like the learning point. Right? I was just like playing with ideas. And then we didn't make an official release at that point. It was just, you no, know, I'm playing with ideas. And every time I spoke about Elixir, it was treated as an experiment, right? And that was the version that got really, really, really bad because so I spoke about it in the keynote. So just to give an idea of how lost I was, it, we even had a deaf object to define objects. They were immutable objects. So every time you got a new version and you can see how that can sound horrible very quickly, and it had a prototype based chain. So every time you wanted to call something that object, you need to go through the whole inheritance chain and the chain of the prototype. So it was really, really, really bad, right? But from that point, it was the point where I separated what I wanted from how I wanted it, right? Because at that point, it was coupled, right? It was like, oh, I want this, but the how went together. So for example, I wanted polymorphism and I thought, well, objects, right? They can get polymorphism from objects, so let's go there. So I wanted metaprogramming. I said, well, I can evolve strings and let's go like this, right? So at that point, I said, like, okay, I obviously know what I want at this point, but how I want it, it's definitely up to discussion, okay? So it was at that point I started learning more and more of the languages 
and getting acquainted with them. It was like a period was almost eight months of no commits at all to the Elixir Ripple story. And then when we started, basically started over. We started everything from scratch because everything changed, right? We were able to reuse parts of the compiler, but the language and everything I had written in the language, it was completely changed at that point, right? And then I knew, okay, I want metaprogramming, so macros is a really interesting way to have metaprogramming. But how can I have macros without having a Lisp syntax, right? So that was one of the problems that I was trying to crack for a long while because I already had other Lisps running their language on machine. And for good or worse, I didn't want to have another Lisp. I wanted to try having, I'm saying natural between quotes, a natural syntax. So that's what, one of the things I was exploring all this time. And okay, I want polymorphism. I know that closure protocols are a very good way of having that. So that's what I'm adding. And after we added macros, at the beginning, it's easier to bootstrap if you shove stuff into the compiler because you still don't have all the whole infrastructure, the whole standard library. But with time, after that initial spike, we were consistently removing code from the compiler and making the compiler smaller and smaller and smaller until we got to a very small core language that we cannot implement it using the other features in the language. And so we got this really small core and built everything around it using macros. So I like to say that it's really easy to reject features in Elixir because a bunch of Elixir is implemented in Elixir itself, which means that there is really no excuse for to not implement it as a library. You have all the expressive power you have in Elixir, it's available for you to use in your libraries and extend the language in whatever way you want. And that was the kind of idea that we have and how we got from that really bad, poor prototype to something that eventually we said, okay, this is 0.5 and this is the version that we are comfortable with people using it because it doesn't have the drawbacks that we had before. It's rare to have heard of someone who actually recognizes that and says, look, we've got enough wisdom to realize we flushed out the ideas, we know what we want, but this isn't going to sustain us long term. So that was one of the other things that impressed me the more I heard about it was like, we figured out what we want and we're actually taking time to go re-understand the best way to do this instead of just keep hacking on hacking on hacking. Yeah. Because we recognize that to grow the language, we're going to be dealing with this long-term, ideally, right? Yeah, and I think Rust kind of went through similar things, but in a much more public way because of the whole visibility of the project. And people complain a lot, right? But that's okay. The language is in development, the language is in definition in the Rust case. But what they had as feature in the language in version 0.2 or 0.3 is very different from what they have today. So they went through this rehashing period like, we are trying to add stuff and they add and then you need to take parts because they don't fit nicely and so on. Kind of rehash a little bit of our ideas and your foundation until you get something that you are confident to say, okay, this is getting close to what we are comfortable with and where we think this should be. And I think that this whole process was really big learning exercise for me, which is this exercise. It's kind of an exercise in patience, right? You cannot stay two days in front of your desk and thinking and thinking and the solution is not going to show up in those two days, right? You need to wait, read, go work on completely different stuff, have some fun, right? Then read a little bit more or play with something completely unrelated or a little bit related 
do some prototypes, and then eventually a good solution that's going to fit nicely is going to come. So in these areas, you need to have patience for the good things to come out. And I become much more confident with doing prototypes. Previously, I didn't really do prototypes. But now I know that because my company, Platform Attack, we build web products, right? We are going to use it for the web. So I've built a kind of a small web framework in Elixir just as a prototype. It was built from scratch, probably, but what, uh, one month, two months of work. And it was from scratch. I was like, with the whole mindset, this is going to be a prototype because I'm 100% sure those are uncharted waters. A web framework in the new functional programming language. I had no idea how it's going to look like, but it was a very good exercise to see what I wanted to have, what I don't want it to have, what are the good parts, what are the bad parts. Because otherwise, if I don't do that and people start using it and they use the web framework, someone eventually will have to launch the web framework, the good parts book, right? Because <laughs> they need to make a distinction. I'd like to dig in a little more about the way you've used the macros there and get a little slightly more technical as much as we can because it's audio only for everybody. But because you mentioned the small core and you're going the Lisp route, essentially you took a simple language that gets down to the abstract syntax tree, right? And then you're able to just manipulate that syntax tree under the covers. So it's more syntax tree transformations than just textual transformations on macros, or do I have that wrong? Yeah, so we have the tokenizer and the parser. And that is going to spit the Elixir syntax tree, right? The representation for coded code, and that's what you have access in the macros, okay? So after we have this code, right, with the representation of our code that's visible to Elixir developers, we have a stage which is going through this code and seeing what is a macro and expanding this macro. So the macro is going to receive exactly the code representation as argument and needs to return code representation. And we just do that recursively, right? And we do that for all the macros that we know, right? And after we expand all macros, you're going to have mostly three things in the ST. You're going to have like literals, which are numbers, strings, right? We are going to have functions, which is your functions or Elixir functions that they actually need to be called at runtime. And we are going to have these special forms, which are things that they are special for the compiler. And every time the compiler see one of those things, it's going to emit something particular. For example, the equal sign in Elixir, it's used for pattern matching. And pattern matching is implemented by the virtual machine. It's not implemented in the language, which means that the compiler is going to see that thing and is going to emit special code to, so that actually works as a pattern matching. So that's the base structure. Everything else, they are just built around that. So we have if in Elixir, and it's just a macro. The whole protocol stuff is just implemented with macros. Actually, even that module, which you use to define a module in Elixir, it's a macro too. It's not a special form. The same with defining functions and so on. Yeah, so that's kind of how it works regarding compilation. One of the things I was hearing was the inspiration of macros as more Lisp-style macros. And then the other thing was that it was more hygienic. And you guys have very hygienic macros where you're not pulling in and overriding stuff a lot. So I was wondering, as you guys handle that, if that was because you managed to get it down. And it sounds like it was because you managed to get it down to such a core language that you're able to take this parsing and essentially change that syntax tree in place for what you have and then substitute that back in. Yeah. 
So one of the other things that was interesting and that kind of became more on the radar that propped it up, and I think it was about a year ago, was Joe Armstrong came out and said, I've taken a look at Elixir. Here's my rundown of Elixir as a new language, coming from one of the creators of Erlang. It was interesting to see his ideas and thoughts, at least from an outsider perspective, of here's things that I wish we would have gotten right that's going to be hard to get right longer term. And that was one of the things that got it on my radar more. And I'm kind of curious as to what you feel you can talk about on that. It was a really nice article. And uh, uh, in my talks, when I was, I'm speaking about Elixir at conferences, I usually use one quote from that article, which is, this is good. So I just have that new slide, right? From Joe Armstrong, creator of Erlang. So it was really nice. And some of the feedback he gave, so some of the things we really discussed, like changes to the language, and we discussed and we ended up not doing it for different reasons, but, but some were very good ideas, which is, and it was really good because at that initial moment of the language, where we're switching a lot, it was really required, which is, we need a way to version your project. We need to say, I'm writing this code in Elixir version, this and this and this. And then we just added to Mix, you can say, I expect this code to run on Elixir version, this and this which was an idea that came exactly from that article. And there was some nice, I don't remember exactly, some nice truths when you're saying like, there are three things in the language, it's like the ones you don't get right and people are going to rightfully talk about it. And the things that you get right, nobody talks about it. And there was, I think, one other category, which is the things that you kind of get right, but you're going to have to explain for the rest of your life why that is, those are the two categories. And that's absolutely true. There are like two things that they are recurrent in discussions when people learn Elixir, like, why does this work like this? And there is like a perfectly good explanation for that, but we'll probably have to repeat it for the rest of our lives because yeah, it's sealed, right? It was really, really good. And Joe Armstrong, he has been really, really nice. And the other early creator, one of the others, Robert Birding, he has been extremely helpful as well. We have the Elixir Lang channel on IRC, and Robert, he's there. He answers questions. He also developed our language, like least flavored Erlang. So sometimes we are having discussion exchange ideas how Elixir, Erlang, and the least flavored Erlang solve the same problem, but in different ways. So it has been a really good experience. Yeah, it was one of those interesting things from both sides of saying, okay, so what does Joe Armstrong kind of wish he had gotten right? Because I remember some of that documentation on the outside of functions. He's like, I remember that. He's like, that's kind of a pain because when you start to move stuff around, you're like, oh, I forgot to move the documentation with it. Or I remember him pointing out that the function in the Erlang shell is different than the anonymous function in Erlang. And you can't define the function in the same way on both. It was interesting to see some of those things. He's like, wish we would have gotten this a little bit different because it would have been nicer. But yeah, as you said, these are the things we have and these are the things we're stuck with for good or for bad. I was kind of curious as to what your thoughts were on that article because it seemed like glowing praise with a little bit of be warned, here or there be dragons if if you don't think through this carefully. Yeah, yeah. Actually, went because some of the issues, they're actually shared between Elixir and Erlang. In Erlang, all your code needs to exist in a module because 
Modules are the unit we use, for example, code reloading and so on. So you can't have a function that doesn't exist anywhere. It needs to be tied to a module. It needs to be defined inside the module. And that's where one of the complexities comes regarding the shell. If you want to have functions in the shell, ideally you want to define them inside modules. But people, they want to play with functions in the shell. So how do you break that? And it's also important regarding the implementation because in Erlang and in Elixir today, we have Evolve, which is what we use in the shell. We are evaluating code. And it's implemented in Elixir and in Erlang, which means you need to kind of like implement the language, you implement part of the compiler that's going to emit bytecode, but you need to implement part of the stack that's actually going to evaluate that at runtime. So we were discussing, you know, how can we actually change these and have a way to kind of maybe have small modules that we can pass to the VM and run the code so you don't need to do this evolve dance all the time, kind of anonymous modules feature or something like that. But then it would go to the VM, but if we can actually come up with a good solution, it would be helpful for everyone, right? It would be helpful to Elixir, it would be helpful to Erlang and so on. So it's a win-win situation for everyone. And many times when I find bugs, I try to contribute them directly to Erlang exactly so everyone can benefit from it. And it's good because it's not called I maintain, so it's less good for me to maintain too. Yeah, so the whole relationship is really good. And you mentioned the modules as the package of code reloading. And I know you pull in and wrap the OTP stuff, but that's one of the things I don't know that I've really heard being sold too much was the hot code loading and reloading that you get in Erlang but you should be able to take advantage of all that in Elixir, or am I wrong? It's exactly the same. So one of the things, so when I said when I did the experiment with Elixir and it was really, really bad, one of the things that we broke was the ability to hot code. And then when I started the new Elixir version, I, one of the goals we set up was compatibility. For a long period of time, I was actually very conservative in changing one of those foundations in Erlang, right? The gen server was just a very free wrapper around the Erlang server, the same things for the other behaviors like Genevet. And just with time that we got more confident to say, now I'm really comfortable with this to take decisions in this area and maybe try to shape it to different directions. And after talking also a lot of time with people that worked on that literally for decades or five years, they're using that stuff. I was asking if you could change this, if you could make it better, how would you make it better? So all those things, they work. They work exactly the same, hot code swapping. And we have the GenServe as well. And recently we started to change it slightly, but not change it, more like extending it or augmenting it. So in Erlang, we have five main behaviors. So we have the application, which is when you... Behaviors are components, you know, we have the applications, which what we use to pack our code together. Those are exactly the same in both. We have supervisors which is when you create supervision trees. So if a process dies, you can say, okay, if this process dies, I want you to restart a new one in its place so it can kind of start to write a system that self-heals. And the supervisors, they are pretty much the same as well. Like the behavior at runtime is the same. We just have a very small API to make defining the supervisors more straightforward. So those are the same. And then we have the other tree, which is your server, which is about writing generic servers in general, which is about something that's going to receive messages or requests from other processes and return something back. And it has its own state too. So it's supposed to be really generic. We have gen event, which is supposed to be more of a pub sub thing. You can send an event to the gen event and different handlers can consume that event and execute some code. 
And we have GenFSM, which is state machine to create generic state machines, finite state machines. So of those three, GenServer at this point is still pretty much the same. But what we did is that because a GenServer is a generic server, it means it's generic. And it means that sometimes it's not obvious what it does because it can do a bunch of different things. And in a large scale, it means that it's both about computation. So you can have a GenServer that's like computing stuff. But you can have a server whose sole responsibility is to keep some sort of state, okay? So sometimes it's hard because having a server that it's about keeping state, and it's very hard for us to see that in the code. So we kind of, in the whole space of things, we created two things, which one's called agents, which are entities that are just supposed to be around the state. That's really good because if I see an agent, I know it's all about state. It's not about executing code or performing long-running computations or so on. And we have created tasks, which are about computations. They don't have a state. They just code that you want to run. And when we broke it apart, it's really good because first, it improves communication and improves understanding of the code because once I know it, I know what it's doing. And it allows us to create a specific specialization. So we have tasks and they execute random code, but we ship with something called a task supervisor because the ability to spawn many tasks tied to a supervisor is very, very common. For example, we are doing a TCP acceptor. What we're going to have is that we have a process that is accepting TCP connections. And once it accepts, you want to handle it to another task to handle that particular request. And you just do that by putting the task supervisor that comes in the strong library, and it's very easy to use. You don't need to be redefining a lot of stuff. So this was something we started to do with Jansara, which is to start thinking about if we break this apart, what can we get out of it? And then I have plans that are still very raw about how we can improve agents too and explore my ideas with it. And we did something similar to GenEvent. We started to explore how we can have GenEvents more focus on string processing in general. So what if I have a cascade of gen events and they are all receiving events and transforming them somehow and sending it to other gen events that is transforming, transforming it. Is the idea of transforming data, which is very common functional programming, but we are making it about stream, right? You're adding concurrency to it very easy by cascading all those gen events communicating. And the third one, which is the finite state machine, we simply don't have it in Elixir because I personally don't think the Erlang solution is a very good solution to this problem. There are even projects in Erlang, open source projects, libraries that try to solve the finite state machines in different ways. So we didn't end in Elixir because I think it's a problem that deserves more thought before we decide this is a good solution or something else is going to be a good solution. So it's kind of out. And this was quite recent developments in general, I would say six months, maybe a little bit more, which is when we felt confident to make such decisions. But everything is there, right? You can, as I said, if you really want a state machine and you are okay with Erlang one, you can still go and use the Erlang one. But the foundation and everything you can do, we are mostly augmenting it and trying to find new ways to explore it and make it accessible and useful for developers. Sounds really neat. I didn't actually realize that the agents and tasks were essentially another layer or behavior, I guess in Erlang terms, on the gen server. Because I know the gen event and gen FSM, and I want to say even possibly some of the supervisors are actually just specialization behaviors of a gen server. And I didn't realize that task and agent were that as well. 
Yeah, so an agent is literally implemented as agent server, but the task is not agent server in its implementation. But the idea was to pull those things apart from the agent server and allow it to be a little bit more specific about those cases. Okay. So you just hit 1.0 recently, maybe a month ago by the time this goes out. Is there anything you kind of want to talk about 1.0 as that we hadn't covered yet? Just because it's there, it's recent now? So now it's like the perfect moment to start because you can start building things with it and you have the solid foundation. And that's what makes me very excited about this whole thing, right? Because now it's the community job to build up interesting projects and start putting it in production and come up with those interesting use cases and explore ideas and do a little bit of that. And now the ones who need to do that exercise in patience is going to be them also, right? They're going to find interesting problems and then they need to think, they need to do their exercise in patience and come up with interesting solutions. And I'm really excited for that, to see the whole ecosystem and community grow. And that, for me, is the big deal about 1.0. Yet at the end of the episode with Bruce Tate, he also mentioned that you wrote the intro for his new Seven More Languages book. And you kind of put in something along those lines about these are the early days of the languages and you have the chance to really help shape them. So it sounds like you were kind of saying that as well, just in a different manner, where it's time to bring your ideas and bring the problems and figure out what makes it into the language as core and what makes it into the language as more just environment via community and packages and things like that. Yeah, exactly. So Elixir Lang is the website, and I've seen a lot of pretty good resources on it. I'll make sure to put that in the show notes, but is there other place for Elixir for those wanting to dip their toes in more that haven't checked it out? Are there any other good resources out there that you want to mention and give people a heads up for? So I think most of them, they are linked on the website. So we have Elixir Sips, which is a screencast about Elixir. I may be getting confused because we have some fun play with words like Elixir Sips. Many projects, they do some fun play with words. And sometimes I get confused, but we have screencasts. So if you like screencasts, another very good way of getting started. We have plenty of books. We have our own getting started there, which takes you from knowing the language up to the point where we build an actual application. We build a distributed key value store, very simple one. Of course, because it's the getting started in there so you can learn more about those principles of gen server, gen event, agent, what those things are about. And then there is one which is, I mentioned once in the talk, but it's the Alexa conference. We had Alexa conference in Austin, July 2014, and the talks, they were recorded by Confreaks. And we have very good talks in there. So if you want to know more about the history of Elixir, you can watch my keynote. David Thomas also gave a keynote on how Elixir makes him think differently when writing software, which is pushing the direction of pattern matching and so on. There are talks about people putting Elixir in production and how that's working out, developing a game server of Elixir and how it works and so on. So it's a very good resource if you want to see more like from different people and just want to know what people are building and doing with it. And I think I saw something there. There may be another Elixir conf coming up in Europe. Is that? Yes. So I think it's going to be in April. We are having Alexir conference in Europe. I'm not sure they have still publicly announced where it's going to be, but you can follow Alexir Lane on Twitter 
or Galaxy Conf handle, and they are going to announce soon. And yeah, that's going to be really nice to have a conference here nearby, close to home. Sounds good. So I think we've covered a lot, unless there's anything else that you want to mention that we haven't mentioned yet. No, I think we covered a lot of ground. There isn't anything specific that comes to mind. We really talk about the language and the core of the language and the package management thing and the whole of the community, right, that we expect it to have in the next months and years. So I think it's good to finish with an invitation, right, to come be part of the community, play around, and build fun, practical, interesting stuff. Okay, yeah, that sounds good. So is there anything you want to plug that we haven't talked about? Do you have appearances coming up that you're going to be speaking at? So if people are going to be going to some of the conferences where they might run into you and be able to see you talk or look for upcoming videos that will be released that maybe, or just any other recommendations or things that you want to let people listening know about? I don't think there's anything comes to mind right now, but something that I have been doing the last days, I'm just going to leave it as a sort of general pick, is that the Strange Loop videos came out, and Strange Loop is a fantastic conference, and so I want can drop the link there for Strange Loop, because in the last two days, I probably saw 10 or 11 videos already. Uh, I leave them running here on the side when they're saying something interesting and stopping and listening, so yeah, it's really good and really recommended. And they did an awesome job of having the videos two or three days after the event. So, yeah, it has been fun. Yeah, I was pretty impressed with how quick they got it out. It seemed like the day or two after, because I started seeing videos pop up yeah. while the conference was still going on. Yeah, and then they are gone. So today is Monday. I think that the event was like Friday or Saturday. And they said that all videos are already published. So that's awesome. Yeah. So where can people find you online if they want to follow you and keep up with what's going on? Or, I guess, you slash Elixir? Yeah, so that's a very good question. So there's Twitter stuff. Jose Valim on Twitter, Elixir Lang on Twitter. And the company, my company platform attack, we get some Elixir stuff related out from time to time. I am all the time. We have a very active community on IRC. So there's Alexander-Lang on IRC. We have links on the, the website and also mailing list. So if you want to get more interaction with the Elixir community, there's Alexander-Lang talk and Alexander-Lang. So talks about discussions in general where people can ask questions and so on. And there's Alexander-Lang core, which is for core language development. And when I said that we are having many discussions about features that were coming and rehashing the ideas and exploring them, they were all happening in the Elixir core mailing list. So yeah, those would be the best places to ping me or get more information. Okay, that sounds good. So we'll make sure to include links to everything in the show notes as well. Cool. I would like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, I would like to thank Jose Valim for giving his time to join me today. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I had a really great conversation. It was really fun. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it was great talking with you and really eye-opening about Elixir. And it's definitely getting to do some Erlang and messing with Erlang. It's going to be interesting to see Elixir and how that changes the way to think about it and integrating in. So Awesome. It was great and informative, and thanks for spending some time with me. Cool, yeah, let me know how it goes when you when you start playing with them and you have like some feedback. It would be nice to hear, yeah. Yeah, will do. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.